Good morning, church family, brothers and sisters. Good to see you all. Yep. Good. So we are continuing, as Dwight mentioned, um, our series through the book of Proverbs, and we took the first nine chapters um, kind of sequentially, but chapters 10 to 31 are harder to do like that, if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs. So we're actually looking at chapters 10 to 31 under several different themes. So last week, Eugene led us through under the theme of the gospel at work. What does God's wisdom say to our work, um, as well as helping us avoid the ways of the sluggard and laziness? And this morning, we're going to be considering wisdom at home. So what does the, what do, what do the book of Proverbs say about the home and the family? So there is so much that could be covered under this heading, marital, marital relationships, what does the Proverbs say to husbands and wives, um, children and their relationship with and their response to parents, sibling relationships are covered in this book, and even grandparenting is covered in Proverbs, but I'm going to focus mainly on parenting this morning because we can't cover everything and I'm already feeling like I should speak a little faster this morning with what I've got prepared because I don't want to hold up the picnic either. Um, so I'm only going to cover a few things. Um, we've had whole classes on parenting um, here over the years and God willing we'll do more. Um, we're always in need of wisdom here uh, for each season of life and parenting and you know as new families come and as we grow and change. So we need wisdom in the home. Um, what does it look like for wisdom to saturate our homes? And what does the book of Proverbs say about the home and the family? All right, so here we go. Um, rhetorical question to kind of ring in your ears while we start. Is wisdom, God's wisdom, at home in your home? Ask yourself, what is the foundation of my home? I'm not talking about just the right answer. Like functionally, practically, what is the foundation of my home, our home? What is your home built on? If it's going to be built on wisdom, if it's going to be built by wisdom, then it actually needs to be built on the fear of the Lord, which we've seen many times um, through the book of Proverbs. So if the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is in our hearts, then wisdom is going to find a home in our home. So here's where we're headed this morning. Four points, the fear and the refuge. And we're mainly going to look at chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. Second point, the framing. We're going to mainly look at Proverbs 22, 6. There's three points under that. You can see it on the outline if you're using the outline. Um, third, the habits and the culture. And then fourth, the family, the family. So there's four points. The first one's the longest. They get progressively shorter. So just in case you need that little orientation, once we get through point number one, you're going to be like, holy cow, we're going to be here all day. Um, so first point is definitely the longest. All right, so the fear and the refuge. Turn to Proverbs 14, verses 26 and 27. If you're, it's, I think it'll be up on the screen here, but if you're using encourage you to turn there in your Bibles too because we're going to look at some other passages and it'll be good to stay home in this or have it right in front of you to refer back to. Um, it's on page 538 in the Pew Bible. Proverbs 14, 
26 and 27. Those two verses say, In the fear of Yahweh, the Lord, four capital letters, we've said this before, but, you know, new people come, and why, why am I saying Yahweh instead of the Lord? Well, the Lord is a title, right? Yahweh is a name. And so, whenever you see, oh, those are all capital letters, um, whenever you see four capital letters in the Old Testament, and it says Lord, it's the covenant name of God that he revealed to Moses um, the burning bush, and then again in, in Exodus 34, um, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. He wants us to know his name, not just tell us what his title is. He is the Lord, but he also wants to be on a first name basis with us, amazingly. So when it says the Lord, four capital letters, I'm going to most of the time read it as Yahweh. So in the fear of Yahweh, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So you can probably see some of the parallel thoughts here. In the fear of, one, fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Strong confidence and refuge seem to kind of be parallel. And then the fear of the Lord just like the beginning of verse 26, is a fountain of life. Strong confidence, fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. If you're safe in a refuge, you're going to be protected from the snares of death. So you see the parallelism there, okay? So let's break this thing down. First, in the fear of Yahweh, one has strong confidence. So remember, if, you were, if you've been with us the whole series, if you look back to the first week, Proverbs 1.7 is the motto of the book. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That same motto is repeated, slightly modified, in chapter 9, verse 10, that says, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. In chapter 9, it's parallel to the knowledge of the Holy One, and that's... Um, not merely informational knowledge, that's relational knowledge. So the fear of Yahweh has something to do with rightly relating to him. So if the phrase was the fear of God, which the Bible sometimes uses, the emphasis would be on his power and supremacy because he's the almighty God. He's maker of everything, over everything. But the phrase is the fear of Yahweh, which again calls up those Exodus themes. Okay? He's the covenant keeping God. He's the one who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush and at the Exodus and revealed himself to the people of Israel at the Exodus. He's the God who heard the suffering of his people and he bore his arm, he flexed his muscles to redeem and deliver them. So, how are we rightly related to Yahweh? Well, his old covenant people, it was by his saving covenantal grace through faith. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. You got to trust. If you're, if you're an Israelite, you got to trust in the blood of the lamb to rescue you from the angel of death. You've got to listen to and follow the mediator, Moses, 
that Yahweh provided and trust in Yahweh's sacrifice of atonement that covers your sin. Sacrificial system in the tabernacle and then the temple. Does that sound familiar? We're Yahweh's new covenant people. If you're in Christ, he's the God who heard the suffering of this broken, fallen world. And he sent his son to redeem and deliver. To redeem us out of slavery and take us all the way home to the promised land. So Moses cried, show me your glory in Exodus 33. God revealed his covenantal name, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now the final revelation has come, the greater Exodus. God himself in human flesh, his name is Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins, to rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So you are rightly related to this God by his saving covenantal grace through faith in Jesus. That's how you get rightly related to God. You've got to trust in the blood of the lamb to atone for your sins. We can't atone for our own sins. He needs to provide that atonement, cover our sins to forgive us and cleanse us from all that unrighteousness. And then we follow the lamb as he leads us out of slavery into the promised land. So if you are trusting in Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. 1 John 4, 18, because we're talking about the fear. What kind of fear is this? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears, namely judgment, has not been perfected in love. So fear of Yahweh in Proverbs is not terror or a cowering fear because you expect judgment. Doesn't mean that. I mean, certainly, if you are aware of your sin and God's holiness, you are wise to not be flippant about your sin, right? You need to you need atonement. But if you have atonement, you don't have to cower anymore. There's no, there's no judgment left. Jesus took it. It is finished. So then what does the fear of Yahweh mean if we're supposed to like build our lives and our families on this? We've got to know what is it supposed to look like to build on this foundation. We need to know what the fear of Yahweh is. We've got to do a little refresher here because this is so central. So let's start with what it isn't. Okay, remember, we're back in 1426. I don't want to lose you here. In the fear of Yahweh, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. So the fear of Yahweh does not mean terror, cowering, you know, in fear before God. It means that we have this we know that we are the creature, he is the creator. He is God and we are not. It's fools that think that they don't need God's wisdom and instruction. There's a pride that keeps them from seeing what they need. In a sense, they're kind of acting like spiritual, terrible two-year-olds. I don't need any help. I know what I'm doing. I can do it myself. I'll do it myself. So there's this foolish hard-heartedness toward God because you're wise in your own eyes. So at heart, the fool believes he knows better than God what's good for him. 
So the fear of Yahweh, on the other hand, is recognition that God is God and I am not, that God is wise and I am not. I need help, his help, from outside. I won't find true wisdom in here by following my own heart. I need God and his wisdom to be the lamp to my feet, the light to my path, and to shine with his light internally so I understand myself and I understand him and I understand how to walk wisely in this world. So the fear of the Lord is this tender, soft, humble heart before God that's open and meek, that's ready to receive his wisdom and his instruction from his word and from others who speak his word to us. So the fear of Yahweh is not a fear that makes you run from him. It's a fear that makes you run to him. Fear of Yahweh is a healthy, holy reverence, a respect, an awe for, a trust in, a submission to the one who made us and knows what's best for us. And then Proverbs, not to mention the rest of the Bible, there's so many places in the Psalms and elsewhere where it's so clear that the fear of the Lord is actually this path to blessing. Just a couple of examples. Our second verse here in Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord, fear of Yahweh, is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Two more Proverbs, Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of Yahweh leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Or Proverbs 28, 14, blessed is the one who fears Yahweh, blessed is the one who fears Yahweh always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So again, back to 1426. No wonder then that in the fear of Yahweh one has strong confidence. Not only does this orientation of light bless you, which is clear, it then extends out through you to bless others. If you have children, your children will have a refuge. You have strong confidence, they have a refuge. Okay. I need to make this concrete, okay? So let me just try to bring this down to some shoe leather here. Um, I shared an illustration with guys who are going through this book called Pure in Heart. Um, and I heard this story years ago, never forgotten it. So there was a guy that I knew who was a pastor of college students. So it was a big church, lots of college students. And so he did lots of pre-marriage counseling and lots of counseling of, of young couples and whatnot. And a couple came in and they were just like visibly shaken and they had gone too far the night before. Like, so they slept with each other. And they're like confessing this to him. And he's listening and he says, you know, someone saw you. And their eyes get like as big as saucers. And they're trying to think back like where they were and who might have like walked by or driven by or whatever. And he says, God saw you. And they went, Whew. oh, it was just God. So that's a case where God was very small and people were very big. Okay, so we're all prone to that, right? Now, apply that here. Let's apply it to sexual sin. It, and this is going to apply to Proverbs 14 and what we're talking about, the fear and the refuge, okay? 
Let's say you, as a parent, are viewing porn or other sexually explicit media. Would you do that if Jesus was standing in the room right beside you? Of course not. Not even if another human being was standing in the room beside you. Like, you may fear Yahweh to a degree, but you don't fear Yahweh. Do you see how we need to fear, grow in our fear of Yahweh? Apply it to how you speak to your spouse or to your child. When you're harsh or cruel or demeaning or mocking, would you do that if Jesus was standing in the room right beside you? No. You may fear Yahweh, but you don't fear Yahweh. We need to grow in the fear of Yahweh. Apply it to how you conduct your business or handle your money. Like if there are places where you regularly or periodically cut corners or cheat, would you do that if Jesus is looking over your shoulder? No. You may fear Yahweh, but you don't fear Yahweh. And again, this is all, I'm preaching to myself here. So we adults need to see and repent of wherever it is in our lives that we are more like a sneaking child, sneaking two-year-old, trying to get away with stuff. Remember back in chapter one, our orientation needs to be that we welcome the correction and the training that Proverbs is going to provide for us. We're going to need to repent. Proverbs one twenty two. how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I'll make my words known to you. We need to see and repent of the places in life where we operate more like an insolent child with God whether it's a terrible twos or a teenager, like a spiritual teenager, I want your help. I don't need any help. I can do it myself. I know what I'm doing. That kind of living does not lead to strong confidence. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Living like that leads to a guilty conscience and insecurity and failure and regret and scrambling for self-righteousness. Well, at least I'm not. It doesn't lead to strong confidence in your soul, and it doesn't make for a safe haven in your home. Bruce Waltke writes this, um, commentator on Proverbs, the disciple must hold the Lord and his commands in holy awe, because if he flees to that realm, not to human securities, he and his children find an inviolable security from the snares of death. In the fear of the Lord signifies that the Holy Family holds the author in awe and carefully obeys his teaching. Author, capital A, God. So parents who have fled to Yahweh for refuge and continue to do so, create an environment where children have a refuge. And those children are encouraged by the teaching and the example of their parents to run for refuge to Yahweh. The name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. When Yahweh is your refuge, you become a refuge for others. Do you see that? 
your confidence and security and safety creates an environment of confidence and security and safety. That is what this passage is saying. Now let me just press it in a little bit more. Your home, my home, our home, should be a safe harbor, a haven in a heartless world. Why do kids run elsewhere? Okay, sometimes it's simply because of the folly and the proneness to wander that's present in every human heart born in sin. Sometimes it's because the siren song of the world is loud and it seems sweet and they're drawn away. Absolutely, but oftentimes it's because the home is not a safe harbor. If there's strife and volatility and tension, they're going to seek refuge elsewhere. So listen, the point of this is not to bury all of us, all of us parents who've failed, in hopeless regret and shame and guilt. The point is we want, we want to welcome wisdom so that we can go with the grain of God's universe or make our home a safe harbor. Help us. It hasn't been in this, this, and this way. How, how do I, what do I do? It can be a refuge because God is a refuge for us and we parents have run to him if we run to him so often that his safety, his safety, his protection, his wisdom, he's given it to us so many times that it shapes who we are and the home that we make. So parents, do whatever it takes to make your home a refuge and you do it by starting with the fear of Yahweh, cultivating fear of Yahweh. He's got to be bigger, and other stuff has got to be cut down to size. Idolatry creates insecurity. So we've got to fear, trust Yahweh, run to him as our refuge, not run to other things. When we, when we self-medicate and run to other stuff, it creates insecurity and trouble and turmoil. So listen, this is certainly something that needs to be aspirational for all of us. None of us have arrived. <laughs> um, if, you were, if you were soaring when you came in, it's possible as a parent you could hear this message and you're going to be crawling out, okay? That's not the point just to kind of knock you over and kick you while you're down. The point is we need God's grace and we're here for it. And he's here for it because he wants to give us strong confidence and he wants to make our homes a refuge. So listen, I know for some of you, the kids are out of the house. You can be plagued by regrets, you know, grandparenthood. Like empty nest, you can still apologize and go back and start again. You know, grandparents, again, you could apologize, seek forgiveness, cultivate it in your family. Even if your kids aren't in the home, you can cultivate it with grandkids. For some of you, you're single. This Seems like it doesn't even apply, but if you're married in the future, what you cultivate then begins with the person you will be then, and the person you will be then begins with the pursuit of wisdom now. And even if you never get married or have children, you are part of the family. 
And these same dynamics are essential to cultivate in the household of God, the church. And those you invest in and disciple will find a refuge because you have found strong confidence by running over and over and over again into to the Lord as your refuge. So all of us have a vital part to play in this refuge-like nature of the church, the household of God. We all have responsibility to make this place a safe place for sinners, even though it's not safe for sin, just like Chris was saying so, so helpfully um, as we were singing and some of those thoughts that he shared in between. So that's point number one. That's the longest one. That's the fear and the refuge. Now let's consider the framing, and we're going to consider chapter 22, verse 6. So flip over a couple pages, and you'll find Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So this passage has been misused at times to promise that good parenting will inevitably lead to faithful children. It's also been used by many relatives, you could say, of Job's friends. You know, if a child is wayward, then it must be the fault and failure of the parents, right? So we parents dare not shirk our responsibility. We can have a profoundly negative influence on our children, but we can't save our children, nor can we damn our children. God is the one who saves, and God can, dis- can save despite all kinds of odds. God is not limited by odds. And the fact that this passage has been misused could mean that we focus more on qualifying what it doesn't mean than listening to and heeding what it does mean. So this is actually important wisdom from God. We should take it seriously and let it motivate and guide us. So we're going to do that by considering it in three frames, okay? And I'm only going to quote from an article once, but I owe the structure of this to an article called How to Train Up a Child, Three Subtle Parenting Shifts by a guy named Matt Bradner. So train up, not tell up. Should go, not shouldn't go. And old, not young. So first frame that will construct the frame of our home as a refuge. So frame to help frame the home. You get it? Train up, not merely tell or say. So okay, parents, ready? How many times have you said some variation of the following? How many times do I have to tell you? If I have to tell you again, or I can't believe we're having this conversation again, I won't ask for a show of hands. How many times could God say that to you and me? How many times did the disciples not get it? They had the best teacher on the planet. How many times did they misunderstand? How often, time, how, how often were they thick, you know? Slow to learn, quick to forget, quick to wander. So are we. Why are we so surprised that our kids are too? So this word train up um, actually could have connotations of dedicating them, consecrating them, and over and over to God and to his wisdom. Also, the adjective form is used of, of a trained group of men in Genesis 14. Um, so we'll go with this translation of trained up. The point is we need to be primarily proactive 
not mainly reactive. Like, who, what parent doesn't want self-parenting kids? Like, especially on vacation, right? Like, self-parenting kids. But nobody gets any of those. We must embrace the calling to train. And when the fear of the Lord is our foundation, our starting point, our path, we're going to be honest with ourselves about how slow we are to learn, how many times we need to hear it. It's going to shape our expectations. It's going to shape how we parent with greater patience, with greater persistence. Of course I need to remind you. I need reminders. So this doesn't mean there isn't teaching. Teaching is essential. The father of Proverbs is teaching over and over and over. He's guiding his son, broad range of life issues, you know, wise and thought-provoking depth, so breadth and depth, and he's doing it with earnestness and love. But it does take more than words. We also must discipline our children. This looks different, different ages of life, life stages. But to not discipline our children is not to love and bless them. Let me just run through some texts here. Um, if you tend to be like, yeah, of course I do corporal punishment, and you're harsh and you do it in anger and whatever, you need to like, whoa, back off and make sure you realize it should never be done in anger. This is loving, remedial, for the good of the child, not knee-jerk, hair-trigger, but if you are afraid of ever disciplining your child, then you need to hear these verses and trust God's wisdom here. So Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Why? Because, Proverbs 22, 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And it takes more than words to dislodge it, to drive it out. The rod of discipline drives it far from him. God disciplines those he loves. Right? That's all of us. Pruning is necessary to growth and fruitfulness, whether it's a tree or a person. Being left alone without discipline is no blessing. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom and a child, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your son for there is hope. Don't give up hope. It's easy to give up hope. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14, don't, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from death. Sheol. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. So wise and consistent, of course, self-controlled, never abusive, never in anger, Wise and consistent discipline leads to order and peace. No discipline or inconsistent discipline leads to chaos. And all of us parents have fallen off the horse one side or the other, and we need to repent. We need to keep running to the Lord for grace and strength and wisdom to be faithful. So the home should be a training ground with wise discipline for the sake of freedom and flourishing. But more than just discipline, it also is for the positive teaching and shaping influence that's intended to be the bread and butter of the parent's role. 
So second frame that we should consider. First was train, not just tell. But second frame is should, not should not. So a positive pursuit of the good, the yeses of the Christian life, not just the don'ts and the thou shalt nots, the no's, which reflects the heart of God, right? In the garden, there were a number of positive commands. Be fruitful, multiply, rule and subdue, work and keep. There was one prohibition. Don't eat from this one tree. Now there are certainly quite a few more thou shalt nots east of Eden after the fall. But that doesn't mean that God's heart and ours is primarily no, 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 negative. Because love God and neighbor is the primary pathway of life. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So example, yesterday, um, and I'm going to need to speak faster, um, about 13 guys meeting to go through that book, Pure in Heart. Um, and again, it was a follow-up to chapters 5 to 7 in Proverbs on sexuality. So this world is so twisted and perverted and cheapened and I, I idolized sex that it's easy for Christian homes to focus mainly on all the no's with regard to sex and sexuality, right? That can end up kind of creating a falsely negative view of sex. It's dirty because we only talk about what not to do, what thou shalt not do. Or maybe we don't talk about it at all because it's kind of taboo and it's uncomfortable. It's not something we talk about. Rather than positively painting the beautiful picture of the goodness of God and his wise and loving design for sex and sexuality, like Proverbs 5. The importance of the yes, the positive, the should applies to all kinds of areas of life. For instance, technological virtue. I'm just, so I just talked about sex. Here's another one. Technological virtue. Here's what happens with me. Any parents with me? Um, I see, I don't have my phone with me in church, but like, you know, you see everybody is a slave to their, and you read these articles and, you know, attention spans in the tank and like all this addictive stuff that happens, and, and then I walk in from a long day, and Ben's on the computer, I'm like, how long have you been on like, you know, get off of her, you know, and I'm like, why is that? Well, I'm afraid. I don't want him to be a slave to those things, or any of the other kids. I've annoyed all the kids with this, you know, and whatever. If I'm only, whenever we bring up the tech conversation, how long have you been on? Don't check that. Like, how helpful is that going to be? How about a positive view of technological virtue and not just laying that out and making sure there's like really positive alternatives that are easily accessible, but also modeling it myself? Should, not just the should not. All right, we need to hear it. I'm going to do one more. I'm going to, this is, sorry. The point of this is not to just like, you know, make us all feel about this small. Although, humility is a good thing. Um, it applies to marriage. Does your marriage commend marriage to your children? The yes, not just the no. Or does it caution them from it? And this is aspirational. We can turn today and start fresh 
and head in the right direction, even if we're sitting on the path and like, I don't know what this looks like. I don't know how to do this. Face in the right direction, ask for some help, and let's crawl. positive shoulds are so important at the heart of our training. Third and final frame that frames the home we're building. Old, not young. When he is old, okay? So we need to build with the long view in view. Play the long game. You're raising adults. These kids are going to be out of the nest before you know it. Um, So I said I was going to quote from this Bradner article. He writes this, we desire to parent now in such a way that our children want to engage with us when they no longer have to. The long game may last for decades, but it begins now while our children are young. We didn't want to wait until they left the house to create an environment they would want to return to. The desire shaped how we spoke to them, especially what we wanted them to hear most and least. If our kids were to hear us say the words, how many times have I told you? Our hope is that it would most often be followed with something like, how much I love you and consider it a privilege to be your parent. These are the kinds of words we want them to hear most. Again, I am keenly aware that there are plenty of regrets and mistakes in my own life, and I know it's all through this room. And the goal here is not to just kick you while you're down. We certainly need to face where we're at but run to the refuge. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Righteous run into it and are safe. And there's strength there to draw on so that we can start again and head in the right direction. So we need to build in hope. There's going to be a lot of bad days. Those of you with young children, your toddler's sometimes going to say that they hate you. First time you hear that, it's probably going to really throw you off. You're going to feel like a failure. Your teenager's going to close off to you. You're going to feel like you're losing him or her. Maybe you still feel that way. Again, run to your refuge, dear parent. Take the long view. Keep trusting in Yahweh with all your heart. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't lean on your own understanding. He will direct your steps, and you'll know how to build today for your hoped for tomorrow. We can't control the tomorrow but we can faithfully build today. Third point, habits and culture. What kind of culture are you making in your home? Um, Just shorten some of this here. So there's a guy who's been on staff a long time at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C., Matt Schmucker. His wife's name is Elizabeth and um, they've got some great advice that they penned. Um, if you're interested, just shoot me an email. I'll send it out um, to you. It's like 39, you know, bits of advice, and there's just some gold, lots of gold nuggets in there. But one thing they say here is we often speak of a home with the aroma of Christ. What kind of culture are we making in our home? What's the atmosphere like? What kind of air do you breathe when you come into the home. We often speak of a home with the aroma of Christ, peace, hope, forgiveness, and love, all for God's glory. Alternatives are homes with the aroma of a bus station 
Our home can feel this way sometimes. People just passing through. Or a war zone. People fighting all the time. What does your home smell like? So listen, like if we are gonna change the culture of our homes, it's gonna happen with lots of little investments. Lots of little, like it's gonna happen by way of habits. Okay, so earlier this year, I read a book by um, Justin Whitmore Early called The Habits of the Household. Looks like this. It's excellent. I gave it out to a bunch of dads at Bethel, and I have two extra copies, so I'm going to leave them right here. If, you are, if you've got younger kids and don't have a copy, moms or dads, come grab one after the service. They'll just be right here. But I'm just going to string together a series of helpful quotes. I don't usually quote this much in a sermon, but this is, I think, a helpful way to um, draw this to a close here. Lots of wisdom be had in this book for the how to build the kind of home that we've been considering here in Proverbs from chapter 14, chapter 22, and elsewhere. So follow along with these quotes here. One of the most significant things about any household is what is considered to be normal. Our routines become who we are because the story and culture of our families. To steward the habits of your family is to steward the hearts of your family. The same feature that allows us to perform a good habit without thinking about it makes it hard to change a bad habit even when we are thinking about it. Picture a wagon wheel in a rut. It takes no effort at all to stay in the rut, but it takes incredible effort to pull the wheel out of it. Good or bad, a rut is a rut, and our brains love ruts. You can't think yourself out of a pattern you didn't think yourself into. You practiced yourself into it. So you have to practice your way out. Habits of the household are not just actions that form our family's routines. They are liturgies that form our family's hearts. This is why we should choose them so carefully. If our hearts always followed our heads, we would not need to practice the things we learn. We'd just learn about it and the rest would follow. But that's not how humans work which is why the biblical understanding of sanctification is not just about education and learning, but about formation and practice as well. Consider habits of the household as an effort to unite education and formation. Think about them as ways to align our heads and our hearts so we don't just know the right thing to do, we also love doing the right thing. And until our hopes make their way from our heads to our habits, nothing changes. If we don't have family habits to form us, we will end up conforming to the communal patterns of the world around us. By choosing our habits carefully, we are falling back on rhythms that are forming us in all the usual patterns of unceasing screen time, unending busyness, unrivaled consumerism, unrelenting loneliness, unmitigated addictions, and unparalleled distraction. There is no escaping habits and formation in the family. The family, for better or worse, is a formation machine. Our best parenting comes when we think less about being parents. So, okay, all of that. And now, our best parenting comes when we think less about being parents of children and more about being children of God. God, please parent me so I can parent them. Taking the hand of God and being willing to follow him wherever he, lead, he leads, that's not a heavy burden, that's light. It's the posture of a child. Someone who is stronger than you and who loves you is in charge, and that's good news for parents and children. The fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. 
and his children will find a refuge, which leads to final point, the family. Listen, no matter what your background is, like what your home life was like when you grew up, if it was rough and painful, or if you had wonderful parents and a happy home life, if you're single, or if you're married with or without kids, the worst home life can't keep you from the family of God. And the best home life can't be a substitute for it. Families, our families are a subset of the family. And listen, in Christ, we all have a family. We can all have a forever family. You can be adopted by grace through faith into the forever family of God. God is our father. Jesus is our older brother. You belong. You have a home. You who have failed in all the ways that, you know, is so convicting as we walk through this thing, like, I'm guilty, you're guilty, like, oh, man, I've made so many mistakes, how can I ever, okay, yep, he loves you, he died for you. And he wants to give you wisdom and strong confidence, and he wants to make your home a refuge for children and for others that you invest in now and in the future. You have a home. The family of God is forever. forever. We are all brothers and sisters. There are spiritual fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles here. We all have a role in cultivating the grace and truth-filled atmosphere in God's house where everybody belongs where we take the raising of the coming generations seriously. We support one another. We pray for one another. We help each other. It takes a church to raise a child. And the church is the family for the familyless, and it should be a school for building model homes in the neighborhood of God's coming kingdom where his wisdom, his grace, and his love rule. Let's pray. Oh God, there is so much here and we can only scratch the surface and we're desperately needy and probably very aware of how we all fall short. Would you please make good on your promise in James 1. If anyone lacks wisdom, Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Help us, Lord, to ask in faith. We fear you. Help our lack of fear of you. We believe. Help our unbelief. We're painfully aware of our failures and our need. Would you please meet those needs and parent us so that we can wisely, faithfully, lovingly parent and disciple and make our homes and this household of faith a refuge. In Jesus' name, amen.